Good to see everybody this morning, and uh, I'd like to welcome you if you're here visiting with us for the first time, or maybe you're back for a, a second or third visit, we'd like to welcome you, and uh, hopefully you felt welcome, and somebody has shaken your hand and let you know how glad that they are that you're here. If not, hopefully they'll do that before you leave the building. Um, I want to invite you, with, uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, the fourth chapter this morning. I did want to say a few words about the memorial service yesterday for Nancy and appreciated all of the support that was given to the, to the Eastman family during that uh, time as their, um, Colleen's mother passed away. And also wanted to encourage the church. The, um, her testimony points to the fact that the church had a big impact on her coming to know the Lord as her Savior and your friendliness and your uh, graciousness towards her. I think specifically in regards to a few fellowships that the church had that they were able to attend and they just felt like it was a family. And the Lord did a work in her heart through the community of the local church. And so it just goes to show you that the Lord uses the church to accomplish his purposes and there's great value and significance placed on our role and responsibilities in, in carrying out and accomplishing the Lord's work. And it's weird because that, that night, if you were there, it was, I don't even remember which night it was, Michael, but you probably remember better than I do. Um, but if you remember, there wasn't any like theological stuff going on. It was just the body of Christ coming together. And I think we played some games and we ate some food and we talked about life. And, uh, and that impacted her in such a way that she was interested in what we believed and, and it just, it, that's what happens. And so there's, there's value in that. And I just say that first and foremost to thank the church for your involvement in Nancy's life, your encouragement to her, your participation in that simple event that happened, I think, two years ago, that nobody came to that event thinking, oh, we're going to participate in somebody's coming to know the Lord, right? And, and, yet, and yet it happened. And so, so with that in, with that uh, encouragement, there's also just a challenge within that as well to, to see the little events in the church body, the little things that take place is important. And to, not, to know that you may not fully grasp what God is going to do at a certain moment or a certain time and to be involved as much as you possibly can. It's always interesting how the devil will throw things in our path on the days that we should be there. And the things that we needed the most were going to be on that day where Satan put the most obstacles in our way. And it was like, oh, you know, you never, you never know what you missed out on, right? And so there's just value in, in regards to the church, um, to being faithful. The Lord says in, in Hebrews 10 to never forsake or to count the, the gathering of God's people together as insignificant. And uh, so we just need to be careful of that, especially in a day and age where that is being attacked on a regular basis and Satan is seeking to destroy our faithfulness to the Lord and consuming our time with other perhaps profitable things, but maybe not spiritually profitable. So just some, some things to consider. I'd also encourage you, you know, um, we had a great uh, service yesterday with the memorial service and just the, the simplicity of the gospel for, for Nancy and uh, coming to believe. You know, she grew up in a Catholic church with a Catholic background, very strong in her faith, uh, very strong in that system, and, and believed in 
there was certain things that you had to do to, to work your way into God's favor. And um, it's, a very de- it's a very defeating system. It's a system that doesn't promote uh, the free gift of salvation through Christ. And um, for her, she had to wrestle through that. She had to come to victory over the belief that I can earn my way into God's favor. Just think about this. I was wrestling with, with this last night before I went to bed and this morning. Uh, imagine having to earn the favor of a perfectly holy God. It's impossible to earn the favor of a perfectly holy God. You cannot do it because he expects, it's like he tells his disciples, you must be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. Right? Good luck. Because it's just not going to happen. It's impossible for you to be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. You can't do it. You can't attain to that. And, and yet, religions out there today teach us to try, to strive for perfection. And if you, you can somehow attain to it through whatever they set up as the, as the means to getting there. It's interesting how they set the means to getting there up and, and we always fall short. The reality of it is, is the moment that we sin for the first time, we have fallen short of perfection and there's no erasing that. But at the same time, God sent his son into this world. God, the son, Jesus Christ came into this world 2,000 years ago, didn't he? He was born of a virgin. He was God the Son. He was perfect without, without, without sin, without flaw. He lived 33 years on the earth without sin, never committing any crime. He then died on the cross, and he, the Bible tells us that, his, that our sins were transferred onto him, that our sins were placed onto his body. And then he died on the cross in the place of us. He died on the cross as a substitute for us because we could not pay for our own sins. We could not be perfect. And then it tells us that he rose again the third day and he gave us his perfection as a gift. So now I am perfect, not because I have never committed a sin, but I am perfect in the eyes of God because I, am, I have been indwelt by, by the perfection of Christ. And that's a free gift. He doesn't, he doesn't give it to us based upon some meritorious work. He gives it to us as a free gift. And yes, it does produce fruit in us, but that's, but that's, but that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is on the fact that salvation is a free gift. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, the wages of sin is something that you earn. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you either get your wages, what you deserve and what you earn if you want that, or you accept a free gift, which is, in, which is by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord, and Savior, and you either are judged based upon your merits or you're judged based upon what Christ Jesus has done for you, right? It's simple, but it's so difficult because we are, we are humans who want to earn and deserve and we don't want the free things. Free things are for people that are poor and destitute and desperate, right? And that's not us. Well, I would have to say that we are poor and desperate and destitute, the apostle, the, the Lord Jesus Christ himself actually tells the church in Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea, he says to them, you think that you're rich, you think that you're increased with goods and you have need of nothing, and you, have, you do not understand that you are poor, naked, destitute, and he gives them a list of things that was just truly describing their spiritual condition. And their problem was is that they, think, they didn't think they needed anything free. 
because we can figure it out on our own, right? But we need free things, don't we? How many of us need free things? Yeah, when it comes to righteousness, we need it freely because you ain't going to get it another way. So that's the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you don't know Christ, I just want you to hear that. I want you to hear the gospel. And we talked about it yesterday morning. And, and my desire, my heart's desire is that you would choose it. That you would choose the gospel over, over meritorious um, works. So I wanted to share that because this message is, is, is more pointed towards believers. It's a believer's message. And, 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 and sometimes we, we don't want to forsake the fact that this text of Scripture is often written to believers for the purpose of helping them mature in their faith helping them to mature in their walk with the Lord, helping them to um, live out and experience the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Christ. There's a lot of benefits to being a follower of Christ. It's not just that you uh, are now um, granted his righteousnesses but, and gifted those righteousnesses, but it's, it's also that you get to live free from worry and stress and fear these are, these are benefits, blessings that come along with being a follower of Jesus. And so we want to learn as the church body, how do we, how do we fully experience the, the, the impact, if you will, of what it means to be a Christian, of our faith? How do we, how do we experience that fully? And so that brings us to um, Colossians 4 in which we've been working through the book verse by verse, and this morning is kind of the, it's the conclusion of the instruction part, and then next week we'll look at his um, closing to the, um, to the chapter or to the book, and we'll look at some illustrations and some people that he saw as being um, recipients of this and, and manifestations of this as well. But he closes with some basic instruction, and, and uh, Pastor Michael read the, the parallel passage in Ephesians, and the, the, the only uniqueness to Ephesians versus the Colossians passage is the, the whole armor of God portion, putting on the whole armor of God. That's a, a distinction between the two, and so we'll, we'll understand and unpack that here in a moment. The Apostle Paul started this chapter with instructions to the church that if you want to experience the fullness of Christ, and the, um, the release, the joy, the freedom that comes from that, you have to begin to disassoci- disassociate yourself from earthly passions and to embrace heavenly desires. You have to begin to develop heavenly passions and desires. You have to, you have to put aside those things that were a part of you before your salvation and begin to, the scripture says, to mortify those things. They, they stay with you, okay? When you get saved, you, your old self stays with you in your physical uh, body and you still have some of those desires and you have to begin to kill those things so that you can be set free to live in, the, in truly the freedom that Christ is offering us. In closing, in, these pas- in this passage this morning, he gives us some closing remarks or instructions on how to, how to remain afloat, how to remain, how to, how to stay afloat after you have um, risen above the things of this er- world. What are some things that you can, you can um, do to stay afloat? In other words, what can we do to not be grounded on this earth? 
And you've ever seen, you know, you see a, a balloon uh, uh, going up into the air and there's, you know, maybe somebody is shooting at it. If you've ever seen the movie Up, you know that the guy has attached his house to all these balloons and, and then I think at some point they try to shoot some of them down so that the house will come down. I don't know the whole story, but, but you, you, the idea of it is, is that by shooting some of those balloons down, you will then ground that house. And the Christian life is very similar to that, that there are, there are attacks on our on our balloon, if you will, and their purpose is, is to bring us down so that we will become earthly again, and that we would be grounded and no longer be living in the freedom and the liberties of Christ. And we all experience that, right? I mean, there might be a, a day, you know, Sundays is, are the days that we come in and worship the Lord corporately, and we find ourselves kind of floating, and we're like excited, and, and you know, Christ is exalted, and the worship music is, is amazing, like it was this morning, and you know, everything is just kind of uplifting and you just feel like you can go out and conquer the world, right? And then you wake up on Monday morning and it's like, oh my goodness, what happened to Sunday's excitement and what happened to Sunday's freedom and, 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 and liberty and worship? Well, uh, at some level, it's been shot down. And there's some circumstance, there's something that is, has um, shot a dart into your world and it's knocked the air out of your balloon and now you're back down to earth again and you're living amongst the earthly things and you're trying to figure out how to rise up above it again, right? Anybody ever been there before? And, and, and it's hard, it's difficult, so you, then you spend Monday through Saturday trying to figure it out and then Sunday comes back and you're, you know, the, we should just put a helium thing out there and just, you know, let somebody, everybody takes a little shot of it when they come in and we all talk weird, right? But that's how it works. It, 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 it seems to happen that way, and, and, and I, I don't know about you guys, but I remember growing up, we had church on Wednesday night because it was like the middle of the week, we just needed that extra boost to get through the rest of the week because Sunday just wasn't enough. And then the Christian life is, is like that. There are these attacks that are always being thrown at us, and, they're, and their, purpose are, their purpose is to ground us. It's to, it's to, it's to take away our freedom to take away our excitement, to take away our joy. And um, it's interesting, I, I was looking up the, the idea of being grounded for the kind of the basis of what we're looking at this morning. Being grounded is an aviation term, and it applies to those who fall short of a certain list of standards, and therefore they are no longer allowed to fly. I think sometimes as Christians, we get to that point where we, where we, are discouraged, we're, we're um, frustrated, we're depressed or whatever, and we're, we're no longer fit for flying. We're no longer capable of flying. Galatians 6, 9 tells it, tells it to us this way, let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. According to Ephesians 6, which was read already, Christian, gr- Christians often grow weary and are grounded like this because they are shot down by fiery darts from demonic forces. It is important to note that we aren't grounded by physical things. 
We're not grounded by circumstances. We're not grounded by people. While we, we often will blame those things, we'll often say, well, it's their fault that I'm discouraged, or it's their fault that I'm depressed, or my circumstances aren't what they ought to be, or my situations, if they were better, then I wouldn't be stuck to the earth or to the ground. We often want to blame things for our, being, uh, for our, for our not experiencing the fullness of Christ. But what we learn from Ephesians 6 is it's not things that ground us, but it is demonic forces that ground us. That is truly the, the meaning of Ephesians 6 is, is our battle is not with flesh and blood, but our battle to be elevated, to live above the things of this world is a spiritual battle. Do you know where it takes place? It takes place in your mind. There's a war that's taking place in your mind, and that is what deflates you. Yes, it's true that the devil uses people. Yes, it's true that the devil uses circumstances. But listen to me. Everybody has the same type of people in their world, and everybody has the same type of circumstances in this world, but not everybody is grounded. True? Some people are able to rise above it. The problem isn't with people, and the problem isn't with circumstances. The problem is with what is inside of us what we listen to, what we're prone to hearing, the voices that we have developed in our, we have allowed to, to have an authority in our minds become more and more prominent, and that's what leads us to being grounded. You listen to the right voices and have the right spirit within you, it won't matter the circumstances, it won't matter the people because you will rise above them because your focus is on Christ. That is Peter walking on the water, isn't it? That is Peter walking on the water. The problem is, is that we grow weary and we're grounded because of spiritual attacks within us. And because of our own psychological plan or our own psychological system, the way that we think. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, by the renewing of your mind. The way that you think has to be changed to where that you're thinking like Christ and not thinking like the world. Have you ever asked yourself the question, I, I wrestle with this question on a regular basis, and, and, I, and I want the answer, and I want to experience it more, but have you ever asked yourself the question, do I hear the Lord's voice? Am I really in tune with the Lord's voice that when he speaks to me, I can discern it from all other voices? I think John 10 gives us a, a really good instruction on hearing the Lord's voice. By having a mind that is sensitive to the Lord's voice in what he says. So we come to Colossians, the end of Colossians in the fourth chapter. And he's going to give us five things that I want to share with you. And I just call these five disciplines. Five disciplines that will help you when, when Satan is shooting those darts at you. Right? Monday morning you wake up, work is in front of you. You have a hundred emails and maybe one of them is not what it should be. You have, you have everything is, is kind of against you and opposed to you and life just looks really miserable on Monday mornings, right? And, 
and I want you to think about these five things as being helpful disciplines that will enable you to get past Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning to where that Sunday is not Sunday is not the day that you that you Sunday is not the only day that you rise above the things of this world but that each day of the week is 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 also a victorious day I've often thought of this in, in Matthew 25. It's the, the parable of the ten virgins. You guys are familiar with the, with the parable, and they're going to the wedding, and they stop, and they sleep, and they're waiting for the, for the groom to come and to, and to gather the, the wedding party and to go, and, and the groom comes at night when, when they're not watching and they're not ready, and five of them don't have enough oil in their lamps to make it to the wedding, and so they're like, give us some of your oil, and the the five who did have the oil in their lamps, they're like, we're not giving you our oil. Ours is for, to get us there. And, and these five virgins, they go into the city and they try to buy oil and they get their lamps all, all spruced and ready and they go to the wedding. And when they finally get there, the door is already shut and they're not allowed to come into the wedding. And I've often thought about the fact that that's the way the Christian life is for a lot of people. That we, when it comes time on Monday mornings, when it comes time, we aren't ready for the Lord to come. We would be ready on Sunday. Sunday, the oil is there. The lamps are lit and bright. But Monday through Friday or Saturday, the oil is not there. And we're constantly having to go back into some experience or some event or something to rejuvenate us. And it's, listen, folks, it's not, what, it's not the way that it ought to be. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. And it doesn't live inside of you on Sunday differently than it does on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday. The call is, is for us to be full of the Spirit all of the time. And having enough oil in your lamp on Sundays because you come to church is not encouraging if it's not something that's constant with you throughout the week. Because it may be that you have experiential oil in your lamp and not relational oil in your lamp. And when the Lord returns to take his people home, he's not going to take those who have gotten experiential Sunday morning Holy Spirit uplifting. He's going to take those that have a relationship with Christ, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of them, that, it, that he lifts them up above this world on Monday through Saturday as well. We've got to get that. We have to understand that. Because Christ is with us all the time. Not some of the time. And he doesn't call us to rising above because of an experience that we have. He calls us to rise above because of a relationship that we have. And that relationship never changes. Amen? Amen. Let's go on. I want to give you five thoughts this morning of, that I hope will encourage you, maybe help you, equip you in um, this in this daily, in the daily battle. That not the experiential battle of Sundays being you know, exciting and, and everything is great, but, but Monday battles and Tuesday battles. How do, we, how do we equip ourselves with certain disciplines that are going to help us to continue to, um, to float, if you will? The title of the message is Staying Afloat. So how do we equip ourselves to stay afloat on Monday? How do we equip ourselves to stay afloat on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? So he gives us these five things. If you're taking notes, they're, they're there on your um, little outline that's passed out. The first one is relying on God in prayer. In verse 2, we'll read the entire uh, 
text here, verses two through six, and then we'll come back and uh, address each one. He says, continue or continuing steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outsiders, making the best use of, use of your time. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So the first of the, of the disciplines that the Lord gives us to help us live in light of the liberty that we have in Christ is to rely on God in our prayer life. To have a discipline, to have a, a, a devotion, if you will, to a prayer life or to a intimacy and a communication with God that helps us to rise above when things get difficult. The idea of having a disciplined prayer life is something that is continuous. The apostle Paul tells us to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5. It means to be in a constant attitude of prayer. It doesn't mean that we're on our knees praying to God verbally. It doesn't mean that we go to work and walk around and we speak out verbally in in prayer to God. It it means that we're always uh, living and walking and and, um, uh, working in fellowship with God, in communion with God. There's a prayer that's going on in our mind in every situation and in every circumstance of life. And if you don't develop this, if you don't strengthen this, and if you, don't, if you don't walk in this, when things get difficult, when things get hard, you'll have nothing to lean on other than all of the other things that the world has to offer which are never sufficient. And we don't develop a prayer life when things are difficult. We develop a prayer life when things are good. You don't prepare for war when you're in war. You prepare for war before you go to war. When, you, when you're in the good stages, that's when you're developing your prayer life. That's when you're working on creating a discipline of communicating with God on a regular basis, on a disciplined basis, and, 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 you're, and you're constant and you're consistent in that, in that walk. Then when difficulties come and trials come and Monday morning comes, you're consistent in your communication with God, which, is, which enables you to lean into and press into his strength, which helps you rise above. We do it with church because we go to church on Sundays and we get that, that experience. The issue is, is we need something on Monday, right? And we need something on Tuesday, And that comes from having communion, fellowship, prayer with the Lord. Luke 18, verse 1, it says it this way. Then he spake a parable to them that men ought ought always to pray and not to lose heart or not to quit. In other words, prayer is the the means that God uses to keep us from, from falling, from being grounded, from continuing to do the things that we ought to do in regards to living out Christ in our lives and in the world around us. The Apostle Paul uses three terms here in this text to describe the type of prayer life that we need to have. He says, first of all, continue steadfastly. And this just simply means a faithful prayer life, a, a constancy in our prayer life. We mentioned it already, living in an attitude of prayer 
or constant communion and fellowship with God. In Acts 6 and verse 4, it says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It is a, it is a faithfulness in our prayer life. It might mean waking up a little bit earlier in the morning as we see in Scripture that there was many who woke up early in the day to start their day off with with prayer, with communion with God, with fellowship with God to prepare themselves for the day, for the struggles that were ahead of them. Others would, and I don't think that there is a distinct plan other than the fact that there needs to be a plan. Some might go to bed at night and they might commit that time to communion with God, to fellowship with God, to walking with God in such a way that when everybody else forsakes you, you don't be, you, you're not grounded because you're not alone. One of, the, one, of the, one of the tools that Satan uses to ground us is he often makes us be alone or makes us feel alone. So a faithfulness in our prayer life, a constancy in our prayer life, a a committedness to our prayer life, to our communion with God and our fellowship with God will help us rise above. The second thing that he says about our prayer life that's helpful is that we are watchful in our prayers, being watchful. And the second term that I used here is just a, a discerning prayer life, a prayer life that is alert to the battles that we're facing around us, that is, is sensitive to those battles. A prayer life that is honest. You know, sometimes we get on our faces before God and we're, and we're not honest. We act like everything is, is, is good and okay and, and, and it, it, it doesn't really um, pronounce itself in, in regards to what we're really dealing with. How we're really feeling, what we're really struggling with, what are our emotions in that moment? The Lord wants us to confess those things to him. He, he wants to have an intimacy with us that is, 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 is real. And so a discernment in our prayer life, being watchful, being, being careful not to fall prey to selfish prayer, but also not being so lackadaisical in our prayer life that we, don't, that we don't fall asleep in our prayer life. And literally that's what this word means when it says to be watchful. It says don't fall asleep in your prayer life. And then many scholars said that they don't know that the Apostle Paul wasn't referring back to the Garden of Gethsemane or the Mount of Transfiguration and, and other times where the disciples were weary in prayer and were falling asleep. He says, be, be, be watchful. In, in other words, be, 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 be realizing and recognizing what you're going through, what's going on around you, and the importance of, of prayer, the importance of that communion with God. If you're not discerning in your prayer life, your prayer life can become very rote and very um, non-personal, very non-relational. And so you, you want to be discerning in your prayer Recognizing what's going on around you, recognizing the enemy is attacking you, recognizing your own frailties and your own weaknesses. You want to be discerning in that process so that when you pray, it is powerful in your life. And the third thing that he says is simply that our prayer life should be a trusting prayer life. He says to pray with thanksgiving. We see this same pattern really in a few other passages of Scripture. Philippians 4, it says, uh, don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer 
and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And this is the idea of just praying and trusting God to do what's right. And not just praying and trusting God to do what's right, but praying and expecting God to do something with your prayers. You think about this. The Bible tells us in James 5, that the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. So there's much to be accomplished when it comes to our prayer life. But in that same, in that same vein, in James chapter number 1, it says if you pray and you don't believe, if you pray and you doubt, you should expect nothing from the Lord. And then in James 4, it says if you don't ask, you should expect nothing. It also says if you ask for selfish motivation, you should expect nothing. So the, the prayer life, our prayer life, our intimacy with God, our walk with God, our communion with God in prayer is important as we face the challenges of this life, as we face difficulty. When you wake up on Monday morning, you can have church with the Lord, but it takes place in prayer, it takes place in reading the word. And so the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Paul here tells them to begin with, you have to have a um, reliance on God, a dependence on God in your prayer life if you're going to stay afloat. The second thing that he tells them in our text is at the same time, he says, pray also for us. So now what we have is intercessory prayer. You have, initially, you have prayer for yourself, communion with God, relationship with God, walking with God in a very real way. And then the apostle Paul says that you have uh, intercessory prayer. This is praying for other people. And the second point, if you're taking notes, is recognizing a partnership in your prayer. Oftentimes, strength and perseverance in the difficulties of life are when we recognize that we're not alone. And I don't mean this simply that you're not alone in regards to that God is with you, but you're not alone as it relates to others. You're not the only one that's going through the difficulty. You're not the only one that woke up on Monday morning, right? You're not the only one that hates Monday morning. You're not the only one that finds Mondays to be very defeating and discouraging. You're not the only one. And so the Apostle Paul is telling the church here, I want you to pray for us because we're dealing with the same things, right? Do you ever feel like that? You get up on a Monday morning and you're like, I'm the only one going through this. Well, that's the devil, that's the devil whispering things into your ear that are not true because the reality of it is, is we all woke up on Monday morning and Monday morning stink for all of us, right? Or some other day of the week, whatever it might be, right? It, it's, it, we're not alone in, in these troubles in life. We're not alone in these difficulties in this life. There's many others in, 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 the, in the body of Christ. There are many who are suffering and, and, and struggling, it's, it's knowing that we're not alone in our prayer life. It's when you pray for others, when you lift them up for the Lord, to the Lord and you pray for their troubles and you pray for their problems and you pray for their difficulties, your problems and your difficulties begin to look small, don't they? It's important to recognize that, there, that we're in a partnership and when we pray, let that, let that, let that understanding come, come out through us. That others are in the same boat with us. 
He doesn't just say that they're in the same boat with us in, in the sense of prayer, but there are a few things that he implies in this statement. He says, he says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mysteries of Christ on account of which I am in prison. The Apostle Paul says a few things here. Number one is that prayer helps us understand that we're in a, we're in a partnership calling. What he tells us to pray for them, what he asks them to pray for about him is very specific to their own calling. The very, the very book of Colossians has been, has been calling the Colossian people to manifest and minister the, the mystery of Christ, right? So here's what he says. He says, pray for me that I might minister the mystery of Christ. Pray for me in the same exact thing that you're called to. Pray for me because I'm, I'm doing the same exact thing that we're commissioning you to do. Even when it comes to our calling, we're not alone. And when we pray for other people's success in our calling, we are ultimately selfless in our prayer. We pray for others because they have the same calling as we do, which helps us. We pray for others because they have the same struggles that we have. And the third thing that we see about praying, recognizing a partnership in prayer is simply this. We pray for others because they have greater problems than we have. Notice what the Apostle Paul says here. He's writing to a church, and where, where, is the church, where are the people in the church at when he's writing to them? They're likely in a church building like you're in, or they're in a home meeting and fellowshipping. Where's the Apostle Paul at? Where's he at? And he points that out here. He points that out to them. He says, pray for me because I'm in prison. In other words, recognize that the Apostle Paul is in worse shape than you are. The Apostle Paul's difficulties and challenges are greater than, than your difficulties and challenges. And when we're going to rise above the things of this earth, our prayer life is going to play a big role in that as we begin to give ourselves over, first of all, to praying and communing, communing, communing with God. But secondly, as we begin to pray for others and recognize that we're not alone in our calling, we're not alone in our problems, and the reality of it is is other people have worse problems than we do. It's true, isn't it? And when we recognize that in our prayer life, it begins to help us in our difficulties to, to, remain, to remain above the above the fray, to continue to walk on the water, to continue to do the things that we need to do. First Timothy 2, 1 through 3 says it this way, therefore I, exo- I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Intercession, intercession is good if you feel grounded. If you feel like you're stuck on the ground, start praying for other people. Start praying for their success in ministry. Start praying for their troubles. Start recognizing that their difficulties might be greater than your difficulties. You will start to see that you will start to rise above being grounded again. Number three, we go on in our text here. He says, um, just to repeat, at the same time, pray for us that God 
may open to us a door for the word to declare the mysteries of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So his prayer is, is that the same thing that he is calling them to, which is communicating the mystery of Christ, he is asking that they pray for his success in this, in this same thing. As Pastor Michael prayed before, that God would give me boldness and clarity in presenting these truths. It's so amazing when you pray for somebody else to succeed at something that you are also called to do. It changes how you view it. He goes on in verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outsiders. This is a reference to lost people. This is a reference to how do we stay above the fray when it comes to, how do we stay afloat when it comes to interacting or communicating with those who are unsaved? How do we we live amongst the lost that they don't drag us down? And he just simply says to walk in wisdom. He says walk in wisdom amongst those who are outsiders so that you can stay afloat. And I just wrote this down for the sake of this point, reducing unnecessary conflict in wisdom. Walk in wisdom as to avoid unnecessary conflict. Walk in wisdom as to avoid unnecessary conflict. You think about all of the things that we deal with in this life that drag us down, especially drag our message down or our presentation of the gospel down as we call the world to, um, to embrace Christ, to live in the liberty that Christ has given, to live in the freedom that he has given, to embrace his salvation and his forgiveness. But we might struggle with the love of money or the love of pleasure or the love of success or the love of acceptance or the love of possessions or the love of some other carnal thing. And as we walk in, in, in the love of those things, our, our words become hypocritical and our hypocritical words become ineffective in the lives of those around us. And we walk what we would say is in foolishness. One of the most discouraging things for a Christian is that they walk in hypocrisy. And they don't have the impact on other people's lives that they would like to have when it comes to the gospel because they are not true to the truths that they proclaim. They're not walking in the truths that they proclaim. They're walking in hypocrisy. Don't be bound to this, but I am bound to this. This leads often to discouragement, frustration, and depression. The Lord says to us in Galatians 3 and verse 1, he he calls the Galatian people foolish. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Galatians 3 is simply stating, and the book of Galatians is, is they had walked away from the faith that they had once embraced. The faith that they had called people to, the faith of of freedom in Christ, they had begun to embrace the, the bondage of the flesh again, that they were going to be made perfect in the flesh, and the Lord was trying to help them understand that. Walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom among those who were on the outside. Be a be a wise and it's not walking, it's not, it doesn't say be intellectually wise. It says to walk in wisdom. It means to live out a, a, a wisdom in your life. I would point you, if you, for further um, 
understanding of this is to look at the book of Proverbs and see what wisdom is. Walk in wisdom to avoid conflict that is not necessary. Verse Timothy 6, 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and, and harmful lusts which draw men into destruction and perdition. And this is where the Apostle Paul, we, we read already in the previous verses, where he talks about disassociating yourselves from the things of this world. Walk in, walk in wisdom, walk in understanding of his word, walk in submission to his word, walk in obedience to his word, walk in sacrifice, walk in the things that we, that we are representing to the world around us. Walk in wisdom towards those who are on the outside. And then he says, going on, he says, making the best use of your time. Ephesians gives us a, says it a little bit differently. He says, redeeming your time. And that's the, the, the fourth point is redeeming your time from the world. And redeeming means to buy back. It means to get something back that used to be yours, but it's not yours anymore. You have given up your time to something that is not healthy, not heavenly, not spiritual. You've given up your time to something that is carnal, something that is fleshly, something that promotes the opposite of what we're wanting to promote. And the, and the Apostle Paul is saying to the Colossian church and the Ephesian church, he's saying in light of the fact that the days are evil, he says, redeem your time. Get your time back. Because you've given it up. You've, you've prostituted your time off. You sold it to some other thing, fleshly thing, carnal thing. You've sold it off. And the Lord is saying, get it back. Get your time back. If you're going to rise above the things of this world and you're going to live in the freedom of Christ, you're going to have to get your time back. You can't just continue to live in the pattern that you're in, sacrificing your time, sacrificing your spiritual life, sacrificing your family, sacrificing these things on the altar of success, on the altar of pleasure, or whatever the altar might be that you're sacrificing these things on, that you are giving up things that are directly associated with your time. You are giving up those things so that you can have something else. The Lord says to us, if you're going to rise above the things of this world and, and, live, and live afloat or live elevated above the world's problems, you're going to have to get your time back. You're going to have to get your time back. We're not a slave to this world. The world doesn't own us. True? The world doesn't tell us what we do and what we don't do. The Lord does. And when the world tells us to do something that is contrary to what the word of God says, what do we say to the world? We say no to them. We take back what's rightfully ours. And I think that in regards to this realm of time, we've released so much of it to the world, the world has continued to take more and more and more of it, right? I remember when I was younger, I would, I would, I would go on these little seasons in my life where I would give something up. Maybe it was TV for a while or something I would give up because I wanted to spend more time with the Lord. I wanted to have an intimacy with the Lord. And, and I, I will tell you this from experience and example, it wasn't just a matter of weeks that that time was full of something else that was carnal. That the devil would just fill that time up with something else and somebody else would steal that time from what God meant it to be, which was to be valuable time with him. 
If we as the church and you as God's people are going to rise above the things of this world and rise above the problems of this world and the conflicts of this world, you're going to have to set yourself free from the prison of the world that has taken over your time. It's hard enough even to get people to come to church on Sunday morning, but that's not even a part of the, that's not even a part of being victorious in Christ. I mean, it's like a small, like 1%. There's so much more to it. In the Bible, when the church was at its healthiest state, I believe, in Acts chapter number 2, they met every single day. And they broke bread together. That means they took communion. They had meals together. They studied the word of God together. They gave their time to the Lord. We wonder why things are falling apart in our life. We wonder why our relationships are a disaster. We have given ourselves and our time and our energy and our effort to something that is not what it ought to be. It has stolen our time and our energy and our effort, and things are falling apart because of it. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Colossians, if you want to remain elevated, you want to walk in the freedom of Christ, you've got to get your time back. You've got to get your time back. And then once you get your time back, you got to start using it for things that are going to spiritually help you to rise above. It's amazing how many things, how many things that keep us locked down to this world that we give all of our time and energy to and we wonder why we're locked down to this world. Give your time and energy to the Lord and watch yourself float. But you're not going to do it without redeeming your time. And with the idea, listen to me, the, 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 one of the key terms in Christ's work for us is the term redemption, right? Do you know what the price of redemption was to get you? It was the death of Christ, wasn't it? Let me tell you something. Redeeming anything comes with a great price. It comes with a great price. But it also comes with a great reward. You redeem your time, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Tell you a little story before I move on. A young man who was in a church of uh, a pastor, mentor of mine, not really a friend, but more of a mentor. He had a, he had a young man in his church, very successful, had a huge mansion of a house, had BMWs and Mercedes, kind of had a car, a garage full of sweet vehicles, right? Any of you guys out there that are vehicle guys, you know what a sweet vehicle is. I like to go on Craigslist sometime and think, man, I'd like to have that sweet car, but you know, then that, that desire passes when I look at the price tag on it or whatever. But this guy was just, I mean, he had everything going. He comes to this pastor friend of mine. He said, pastor, he says, my marriage is falling apart. He's like, I have no relationship with my kids my wife has no respect for me. My marriage, I've, I've provided everything that they need physically, but my marriage is falling apart. And this pastor, pastor uh, mentor of mine, he said to this young man who was there, he said, I want you to do this. And he gave him a list of things to do. He said, I want you to go and sell your house. I want you to buy a small house. I want you to go and sell your cars. And I want you to buy a Ford. And I want you to quit your job. Fords are not, um, you guys get it. You guys get it. <laughs> You guys, Volkswagen. No, I got Volkswagen people in here too. So he said, I want you to go and quit your job. And I want you to get a job that takes up 40 hours of your week. And you put your time into your family 
and into your life. And it was interesting because the man actually did what he was asked to do, which is very rare. You know, most of us would walk away and be like, yeah, right. You know, and he did actually did what he wanted. And he came back to this pastor mentor of mine and, and, and about a year or two later, and he said, my, my marriage is, is, is great. My kids respect me. He's like, I don't have a big house. I don't have nice cars. I don't have any of that stuff. But what I have is I have my family. And he, 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 he would testify that he had everything now. And the reality of it is, all he did was he just rose from the earth. He, he let go of all of the things that were holding him back, and he just started to float. And now his marriage is good, his kids are good, his family is good. He no longer is bound by the, by the, by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's no longer bound by those things, but he's now elevated into an intimacy with Christ that, that many don't experience. But you know what he had to do? He had to let go. He had to let go of those things to have the things that God had prepared for him. God has a lot. The Bible says our minds can't even fathom the things that God has prepared for us. But you know the th- do, you, do you know the type of people that God puts things into their hands? It's the type of people with open hands. God doesn't put things into people's hands that are closed. And many of us have our hands closed around things that we know are not what they should be closed around. And the Lord says, let it go. I've got things planned for you. I've got really great things planned for you. But you're going to have to trust me and let go. Right? We want to be in control. Let's, I got this figured out. And the Lord says, hey, I got, I got things that you, don't even, that you can't even fathom. But you got to open up your hand. You got to open up your hand. And some of us have, have lost all of our time. We've lost, you guys, you live in California. You know what it's like that everything in California wants to steal your time. And you got to say no. And you got to say, if it costs me everything, but I can be walking with Christ well and elevated above the things of this world, that's what's worth it. And you got to open up your hand and let go. And you'll be surprised at what God will put in your hand. It will amaze you. You got to redeem your time. Redeem your time, the Bible says. Why? Because the days that we live in are evil. That's what he says to the church at Ephesus. Written 2,000 years ago, remember that. The days that we live in, folks, are evil. Times 2,000 years. How much more important is it that we redeem our time? Get your time back. Use your time for helping others. I wrote just a few things down. Use your time for helping others. Use your time to equip yourself for difficulty and use your time to build the kingdom. If you were to ask, your, if you were to ask yourself today, if you were to be honest and you were to really, really sit down and evaluate your use, the use of your time, would we even give the Lord a tithe? Would he even, you know, a tithe of a day is like two hours and 40 minutes. Right? We give sleep eight. We give sleep 30% or something like that. Right? We give work another 30%. We give pleasure. What ends up happening at the end of the day is, is it's like there's not even a tithe left for the Lord. Listen, we don't know 
I'm just, my heart is burdened because I don't think we know what God can do with people who give them, give him their time. I don't think we know. You go back and you go back 100 years ago, 500 years ago, um, people spent hours and hours and hours praying and reading their Bibles. And it's so hard today. And we wonder why things are falling apart at the seams, right? There's something broken. And what we want to do is look at the world and say, man, it's the world. It's them. They're broken. Yeah, they're broken and they're expected to be broken. The problem is, is the church is broken and it's expected to be fixed. Redeeming, redeeming the time. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, it says, see that you walk circumspectly or walk in wisdom, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming your time because the days are evil. Galatians 6, 9 and 10, it says, and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season, get this, let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Notice this, that weariness is directly connected to doing good. You will feel, feel weary when you do good. But if you don't quit, you will reap a harvest. He goes on to say in verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. It means literally be looking for opportunities to help somebody. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. The last thing that he tells us this morning in regards to rising above the things of this world is to respond to others with grace. He says, let your speech be always gracious. And gracious is just, uh, speaking with grace is just speaking with favor. It's speaking with kindness. It's speaking friendly to those around us. We often create conflict in our life and we often bind ourselves to this world because we have um, harsh words to say to people. We're mean right? We're mean and harsh. Your relationships, you might say something to your, you might be on cloud nine with your wife, you might be floating with her, and you might just say something to her, and, and, and crash, you're both on the ground just crumbling because you said something inappropriate, right? Anybody ever felt that way? Just like in a moment, like the one word comes out of your mouth that you, the devil just kind of threw it in there, and there it was, and then crashing, come, you guys both come crashing down to the earth, Right? relationship stinks again and it's like all these negative thoughts start filling your mind about that person and it all happened in a moment and it all happened because of a word or a phrase right he says this if you want to be floating with the lord be gracious with your words be gracious show show favor to other people with your words show um deference show uh kindness, um, just say things that are, are good and say things that are encouraging and uplifting. Ephesians 4, he says, let no corrupt communications come out of your mouth, but that which is good for, for building people up, right? You ask yourself, well, I wonder how those words built somebody up, right? You just remember this, your words can either build or tear. They're either going to make somebody stronger or make somebody weaker. And that's true with your children and it's true with your mate more than anything else. You can build your children up or you can destroy them. 
And if you want to live in, earth, in the earthly realm and you want to live there with your children, then, then tear them down. You'll live, on the, you'll live on the earth your whole life together. But if you want to build them up and help them rise above and elevate and walk with Christ well, then encourage them. He says, he says to speak to uh, speak to speak, let your speech be always with grace. He says, seasoned with salt. And saltiness just means three things. It means, uh, you guys are familiar with salt. Salt adds flavor. It means let your speech add flavor to a situation or scenario. And not, and not bad flavor. <laughs> Good flavor. Salt can be a preservative. Let your speech preserve things. And salt can be an, a healing element. Let your speech be healing. Let the words that you say be healing words and not, not destructive words. And then lastly, in, the, in regards to responding to others with grace, he says, speak the truth or speak the gospel. It's not just anything that, that we, just, we just speak. It's just we need to speak the truth, but we need to speak the truth in love. He says this, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how you ought to answer each person. And how do we ought to answer each person is, this, is described further in 1 Peter 3.15 where it says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. Always ready, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and in fear. So speak, speak the gospel to people. Speak with kindness, speak with saltiness, speak with grace, but speak the truth to them. Share with them how it looks to be delivered, how it, what it means to be forgiven, what it means to be set free from the bondage of this world. And when you speak to them about being set free from the bondage of this world and to living an elevated floating life, be that for them as well. Don't tell them how they can come to Christ and that God's going to deliver their marriage from conflict and from, from going to make them into a godly husband or a godly wife. Don't tell them that and not be it. God does deliver us and he delivers us from the struggles of this life and from obviously eternal condemnation. Remember, the closer you get, so think about this from the scenario of the balloon again. Remember this. The closer you get to Christ, the more aggressive the enemy gets to dragging you away. The closer that balloon gets to the next atmosphere or the closer something gets to the sun, you know, S-O-N or S-U-N, whichever you prefer, the closer someone gets to the sun, the more dangerous it is. The more likely of being popped and deflated and coming down to this earth. Satan is, Satan is casting fiery darts at you every day. Every moment he is throwing darts at you. He's putting thoughts into your mind, things that you, um, words into your heart, whatever. He's putting things into our world that we ought not to be listening to or believing. And that is why the scripture tells us that we're to take every thought captive and compare it to Christ. He tells us that no temptation will ever come in our world that we're not able to overcome. So in preparation for battle, as you guys know that you're going to face tomorrow morning that deflating that you have to face the rest of the week, remember, start to develop a discipline of walking closely with Christ in prayer, of 
recognizing that you're in a partnership, that there are other people with you that are called to do the same thing, that are suffering with the same struggles, and oftentimes have greater struggles than you do, but not lesser of a calling. Walk in wisdom, redeem your time, and learn to respond to others with grace, with saltiness, and with truth. And this will help us as we rise above the fray of this life and become closer and closer to the one who created us and the one who saved us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this uh, calling and this challenge from your word. We pray that you would help each one of us to um, either begin or continue the process of developing discipline so that we can live lives that reflect on the mystery of Christ and and make it less of a mystery. We show the world around us the reality of the mystery of Christ, which is Christ in us being um, able to help us rise above the things of this world. Please uh, be with us today as we go home and and this week. May these truths stay with us. And um, as we wake up tomorrow morning, may we think differently about the day. We'll give you the thanks and the praise for in Christ's name. Amen.